Hello and welcome to another episode of the TMB Podcast. Today, we're featuring someone who we've been excited to see for a long, long time. This person is one of the most talented, insightful and grounded individuals that I know. Today, I'll be speaking to this person about his experiences as a police officer in National Service. My name is Ashraf and I'm pleased to welcome our special guest for today, Zaki. Hello. Hello, everybody. Hello. Thanks, Ashraf, for having me over. Hi, Zaki. Thanks for finally coming on the podcast. <laughs> I know you're a very, very busy man. So how have you been recently? Uh, I've been doing well. Like, uh, just I've been busy in studies and I just managed to finish a few assignments and a few uh, milestones in my uh, education. So now I'm slightly more chill, but then it's the calm before the storm, they say. That's good to hear. So, shall we just get into it? Uh, yes, let's go. All right. So, today we're going to be talking about Zaki and his experiences in national service as a police officer. So, But before we get to all that, let's uh, dial it back a bit, bring it back to before you got into the police force as a national service officer. So, before you got into NS, uh, when you found out that you were going to be enlisting to the police force, what was your reaction like? Mm, I can't really recall because like... Uh, that it's been about um, almost 10 odd years or more. Not Anyways, uh, I did recall being somewhat intrigued and excited because it's something that is different than most people who will go through the military, go through the army, like being uh, being sent to the police force. So that's probably a different set of experience because I think in popular culture, in local popular culture, we know about like the the grueling training in the military but the police probably back then wasn't really as well known so it was something new something exciting i mean for me also i can say something similar that uh, probably didn't know much about going into the police force because i remember that when i got the letter saying oh you've been you're going to be enlisting to the police force i was like oh man it wasn't really a surprise to me because I had two cousins who also gone to the police force and another one in civil defense. So I was like kind of expecting to go either one of these two places. So my mind was already like mentally prepared that I was going to be in the police uh. force or civil defense. So I was like, okay, another one in the police force in this family. Because <laughs> for my, my brother was actually sent to sent to the army. Although he didn't he didn't go to Tekong because like I think back then there wasn't any Tekong when he was around. Oh, that must have been a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. So like before you enlisted, right, did you hear any stories about how training will be like in HDA, like from seniors, from friends? Had you, do you have any conception of what it would be like in HDA? I think there's a misconception of some sort that the training will be less grueling because it's, uh, I don't know why, because it's the home team instead of the army and also uh, they say that you also need to be trained for like patrol duties and like exercising discharging your duties as a police officer mm-hmm. so that will involve like hitting the books and 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 training in 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 upgrading your competencies as an officer so it's slightly different than just maybe doing physical it's more than just physical training alone mm. I mean, I, I heard somewhat similar things to you. Like, you know, one of my friends described it as like a holiday resort compared to the army or <laughs> civil defense. Like, you know, oh, HTA, yeah, you go there, it's like a, ch- a chalet. Just sit down there and relax the whole day. Like, you know, you go for lessons for your law and like most of your day is spent in an air-conditioned classroom looking oh, yeah. at a screen. Oh, yeah, that's, that's kind of true, but I mean... It's, it's, it's a reductive statement, but it is what it is, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so like, uh, again, were you apprehensive or nervous about any sort of training that you might have 
potentially receive in HD? Like, were you scared of anything before going in? I think other than the natural nerves of like embarking onto a new phase of life in life, I, I think back then as a naive JC kid, I was probably excited. Oh, oh, one excited that uh, we'll be doing this thing as well as uh, probably uh, on the back of my mind, like get this over and done with because uh, to me, like going to NS was like a side mission because I had, I was planning to go to uh, university after after the completion of my NS. Yeah, as will we. <laughs> so like, it was just like, I need to go do this and then I'm going to do it as best as I can and get out. Mm-hmm. But uh, I wasn't too nervous other than the normal, the normal nerves that are associated with trying something new, going somewhere that uh, your family members or your close friends are also together going through, through if you yeah. like we also had many close friends who are so going mm, through all NS. together in yeah oh, yeah, yeah you you were my friend yeah you are my friend <laughs> oh, okay good to know thank you yeah so i think that uh for me the, the most daunting thing was firearms training because I, I was like so scared i've never had a gun in my life and before ns obviously and i was like uh, how is this gonna ha- go you know like i'm so scared of you know, just that the weapon itself, like, it, this can kill someone, you know? Mm. And it's like, so when we, when we, when we, uh, that was the training that I was most afraid of. And probably the second one would be physical training because I wasn't a fit kid at the time. And I was like, oh, I have to spend two hours a day running and doing all the other static exercises. Like, it's going to be hell. And somehow I enlisted earlier than you with the eight weeks of additional fitness prep. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Firearms. I think maybe back then, I. Uh, when controlling a firearm, tr- controlling a revolver is actually very in a very controlled setting. Mm. What was scarier was hearing stories from our uh, our friends in the army with the grenade, because the grenade I think has more error, more room for there is, there is a lot more risk screw, for screwing uh, up. Yeah, yeah. I mean the gun, as long as you face it towards a certain direction, the bullet will hit that direction. Just don't face it towards any of your body parts. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. That. So, and finally, before you enlisted, do you have any expectations about how you'll be living in HDA for the entire week on weekdays? Probably uh, just being very busy, running around like what you say, going. And especially since I went in tr- without the two months of pre-physical training, so it'll be slightly... Um, what what's the word expedited they, mm. they had to move things fast because like um, you need to be competent it's enough it's very condensed I would say the, yeah the, very your, condensed for you I, because everything has to happen in four months oh yes yeah. four months seems like a short time but, but it's, actually, uh, it's a long it, time it, it seems a like a long time but uh, based on the amount of training and learning that had to be done it's not that long actually yeah exactly so uh, moving on right can you tell us about your enlistment day itself the enlistment day itself I can just recall snippets like um, woke up early with my family, then we head over to the to the training center. Then I remember getting the cameraless phone because back then you can't yeah. you can't uh, bring camera phones with camera in. Then after everybody was there were ushers here and there like bringing uh, leading your fam you and your family around. Then suddenly you split away from your family. Then you're shuttled back and forth to different stations where they do checks and. Uh, both admin and physical checks. Mm-hmm. Then I recall that you have to take the pledge. I also recall that they also give you the free hair. The free hair. Oh, I don't know whether it's free or not. The haircut, yeah. It was uh, free. Oh, yeah, okay. It was free, yeah. And I recall how breezy my head felt. Like It's like 
where's my hair? Then I look at my own shadow. Then I was like, who on earth is that guy? Oh, it's me. Yeah, I think having a bald head for the first time was something like really, really uh, unfamiliar. And I was like, why do I have an egg on my head? Like, it feels like an egg, you know? So where's my hair? It's so breezy though. Yeah. Maybe I should adopt it soon again. <laughs> so or moving maybe. on from your enlistment day to your confinement, which is the first two and a half weeks. So were there any culture shocks that, uh, that, that shook you when you were there for the first two and a half weeks of confinement? Um, yeah, I think just the transition from like, from um, post-A-level post life where I was just basically chilling at home almost every other day and playing the computer games to, to a very regimental training. Uh like um, being shouted around, being ushered here and there, uh, and also doing a lot of physical training, something that I wasn't used to back then especially. Yeah, so that is something new. And especially like sharing a very uh, common bang room with so many people who are, you are not familiar with or so, that's something new. Okay, so out of all the aspects of regimentation that they implemented in HDA, right, which was the aspect that you found it easiest to get used to or acclimatize to? The easiest is having a very tight schedule. Like at time point A, you have to be at a certain place at a certain time. At time point B, you have to go there. So you don't need to think too much in where you have to be. So you just have to follow the timetable and then be there when you need to be. Uh, so you, you, you fell in love with the order of things happening there. <laughs> yeah. yeah be, we, uh, uh, beside all the chaos that's that order okay then what was the most difficult part of the regimentation that for you I think one one of one of it is like you have to the durations are sometimes fixed so sometimes you end up waiting for no reason or waiting for things mm. to happen which can be very annoying yeah. <laughs> and also another thing I think uh, military and all regimental training uh, has its own logic has its own like way of thinking that some people they try to rationalize like say oh or they try to say like why can't we do it this way like we could have done done it this way because it's more it's simpler because it's it makes sense to them but then they have to realize that regimental training <laughs> does not care about <laughs> your opinions mm. that you have to follow the the rules and principles and the the standard operating procedures that it has. That it has, yeah. So I guess what you're trying to say is like there's a trade-off between efficiency and uniformity. Yeah. In, yeah. in, the, in the sense that we do what is required of us in as a squad, as a group of people together. Yeah, you need to conform to the yeah. system. I mean, you can talk elsewhere about uh, trying to change the system, but once, but when you're in the system, especially the training part, just, just carry, just do what you need to do. Yeah, I think I've heard more much. than my my fair share of murmurs in HD of people wanting to change the system, like. Why do we have to do this? Why can't we do it like that? Like, <laughs> this kind of thing. Like this, this, this rule is so illogical. I'm not gonna follow it. This kind of thing, you know. Yeah, but then you're gonna invite trouble not only for yourself but like your fellow um squad mates mm. or your fellow uh even your 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 direct superior like your fitness instructor because sometimes they also they also follow it accordingly to what has been done. Yeah, so that's a little tricky. I think some people find it very hard to wrap their head around that they have to that there's this logic. Uh, beyond them that they have to conform to. Especially, I think, especially if they were living like a carefree lifestyle like how you described you were living post A level pre-enlistment. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think also it's like just basically ego versus the system. Nah. But the <laughs> ego has to yield to the system. 
True. So what did a typical day in HJ look like for you? Typical day? Yeah. Wake up early. <laughs> Very early. Before the sun rises. Before the sun mm. rises, yeah. And then uh, have breakfast and take the pledge. I think you... And of course, you have to move from location to location in a squad. So you have to march together and stuff. Then there's the normal classroom, the classroom where you learn like uh, different laws that govern police powers, different laws that govern police procedures. Then there's also different trainings like you mentioned, uh, firearm training, physical training. Usually, I think the good thing is they have the physical training either like before breakfast or or in the early morning or evening so that the sun won't be too hot. Yes. Yeah, I think I actually appreciate that. There was a rule that I remember that between 11 and 4 or something, you're not allowed to have any training in the stadium because of the heat. Yeah, Yeah. I I appreciated that rule. I realised that. Anyway, you wouldn't be, you can't have training because you would be in the classroom anyway. Ah, yeah, so at least there's something to do, yeah. Yeah. Because I, for me, the, for me when I enlisted two months earlier, our training was Primarily, of course, obviously, it was focused on physical training. So there'll be physical training twice a day. Once in the morning, before breakfast, and then there'll be drills the entire day, like, you know, learning all the drills. And then in the evening, again, there'll be physical training. So running became, like, a, a very, very normal thing. Like every morning, okay, you can expect to run at least six, seven rounds around the stadium. In the evening, again, you run another six, seven rounds around the stadium. Like it became, it became a, a typical thing, a mm. typical activity for every day. So, and also, the one thing that I couldn't get used to initially was water parade. Ah, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> water parade, like, I, I never understood the logic of waking up so early just to drink water and then waiting again for the next activity to happen, you know? It's like, why do you have to wake up at 5.30 just to drink a glass, I mean, oh, sorry, half a litre of water and then wait for the next activity, which is probably the pledge-taking uh, assembly. Uh, so, that, that was something that took time for me to process and understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. water parade yeah that was fun <laughs> <laughs> just gulping down half a bottle gosh so just now you mentioned about your physical training so can you tell us more about how intensive it was for you personally I think uh, it's yeah quite intense because like, like I, wa- I wasn't very uh, very physically inclined back then as of as now as no but now. you were but you were in a fit batch the uh, that's because I passed the NAFA test. Yeah. Yeah, so you're already quite physically I, inclined. Uh, it just so happened that I happened to pass the NAFA test. Mm-hmm. And anyways, yeah, it was pretty tough because like what like what you say is pretty condensed four months. Mm-hmm. Then we had to basically be in a good fitness level to 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 pro- carry on your training or else like if you don't pass the IPPT, mm. you may the the fitness if it, uh, proficiency test you may need to uh, train even more. So, but I was lucky that my my the squad that I'm in, the group of recruits that I'm in, uh, were very driven. Then, Wasn't your squad like the one with the most number of goals? Yeah, I think so. I remember your, your squad had the, one of the highest rates of goals or, or passes or something. Oh yeah, so they were actually very driven to mm. like uh, go. Uh, that run every uh run beyond just the normal mandated training sessions. Also, like um we were we were led by a fitness instructor who was very new to the who just uh started his vocation as a fitness instructor. So he was he was quite uh he was quite driven to to make sure that his first squad is a 
is is the good is a good squad. He wanted to make a good impression. Yeah, yeah. and maybe uh, it's his first time on the job. Then I think mm. it's more uh less jaded, more more passionate. You know. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's, I appreciate their them helping out. What were your favorite and least favorite activities in HD? Favorite and least, I mean the whole the whole. Like out of all the activities that you did in HD, which one's the favorite? Which one's the least favorite? I think like uh, it's usually the trainings that uh we have to go to a different uh facility. Like for example, the we have the firearms training. Mm-hmm. Then they usually have uh instructors that are trained for firearms. Then and the instructors there were quite a nice bunch of instructors. They're very friendly. They like to crack jokes here and there. Mm. Uh, but they take their job seriously and they give a lot a lot of like um tips and um advice so that we can improve our our accuracy and precision in shooting so i really appreciated that then there's also like for example the situation based training mm. in SBT, SBT where they have like they have like um um environments of different contexts like a HDB flat or a, or a police counter, then it's basically like role playing mm. where you also have your fellow um your fellow recruits like they pretend to be like a person complaining or a or a person a criminal. Then mm. you have to intervene and then they they will assess you based on like how you how you manage the situation. Then that's a bit of fun because uh sometimes if you are pick as the role as of the yeah, yeah. criminal you want to make life hard as possible for uh, your no <laughs> no not really <laughs> but i do enjoy like just doing something slightly different uh, than just uh just running around and stuff mm-hmm. so like th- those are the few things that i uh, enjoyed when i was training all right Zaki, so let's move on to the final question for this segment uh what was the vocation that you ultimately received when you were graduating from hda so i received the vocation as a uh, the ground response officer. So in essence, it's the officers in blue that patrol the streets in as part of the neighborhood uh, police, um, a neighborhood police center. So it's like the, uh, the, the when you think about police, uh, yeah, that's the first imagery that popped up. Uh. So yeah, mm. I was basically um, assigned as that duty. What was the name again? Ground response officer. Ground response officer. GRF, okay. GRF. All right, so... So now when you receive this vocation, do you have any expectations about what a GR officer does what? before beginning your actual shift work? So in essence, uh, yes, I just basically uh, maintain law, respond to triple nine calls as well as uh, try to deter crime. So basically patrolling in the streets. Uh. Yeah, but I'm sure but before you are able to be deployed on the ground, you must have had to receive further training in order to specialize you for this role, right? Yeah, so, so can you talk more about that training? So uh, basically, um, I think it's more or less the same at, than the previous training, but just more in-depth, like the exact police powers and how you can uh, respond. And also they give like, uh, you know, like we always encounter like a similar kinds of cases. So they make us do a bit more role-playing to mm-hmm. get us more familiar on what are the what are the powers we can enforce during those different scenarios. So that was actually also quite helpful. So do you have any difficulties or any toughness in learning the rules of a GRF officer in the quick time frame that they expected you to learn it? Yeah, it's around three months, but I think it, 
it was a little rush because additionally we also had to learn how to drive so mm. i had to condense three and we had to learn how to drive a manual car so and your driving was not part of the curriculum was it separately yeah it's separate you have to they, they will shuttle you to the driving center and then the one at ubi is it the one at ubi yeah, yeah. and then you will assign a, a then you have to do those things and then go back to the camp and continue your training and so on so your driving lessons were in the evening towards the night the yeah usually night. towards the night yeah so it's a quite a tough day for you after learning the whole day still got to go learn driving at night that's a long day but yeah. they're so they're so planned the curriculum such that you'll have uh driving at a certain time then the law training at other time yeah mm-hmm. all right so uh now moving on to when you were deployed as a ground officer so do you want to share about any common misconceptions the public has about GRF officers that <laughs> you yourself personally experienced? Uh, I think, yeah, there's a lot of misconceptions. Firstly, like, um, I think the public thinks that uh, everything you, a- anything that goes wrong, you have to call the police. Like, sometimes uh, we don't handle all cases. Like, uh, if it's like, if it's like a minor dispute that hasn't, hasn't inv- there's no violence involved, usually there's, either mediation come uh, there's other uh, ways to resolve it instead of bringing police into it and like um, minor things like if you get locked out of your house or that kind of thing you don't need to call the police for that <laughs> unless there is a uh, life at risk la, then you need so not everything you have to call the police so use uh, the triple nine uh, wisely wait did someone really call you because they were locked out of the house uh, yeah, something like that. Oh but my God. we access that there's no, there's no danger to anyone. So, so how do you assist that just, person? So, so we advise them to engage a locksmith. Ah, okay. I thought maybe you break the door down for them or something, you know? I mean, there was a case sometimes, there was one case when a, a parent accidentally locked the child inside the car. Then mm-hmm. that, that, that's where we have to step in. Then we give the, the firefighters the the permission to break into the car to rescue the mm. child. Yeah. So that was like more of a firefighter's job, not a police job. Right? Yeah, but we are there to uh, keep the peace okay. as well as to uh, ensure that the situation is under control. Mm. So that so when there's a danger of life, danger of damage to property, mm. then uh, police presence is uh, important. I mean, it's not, it should, uh, is, should be warranted. But sometimes there's also like if you think that there are possibility of something escalating towards violence, mm. I think that's also fine to call the police because right. different cases. And also, like, um, a misconception is that uh, the police can do every, uh, can do anything, like arrest anyone that that someone suspect to be of wrongdoing because mm. uh, I think in the Criminal Procedure Code, which detects police powers, there are some offences that are arrested that that you need to arrest on the scene. There's other offences that are not arrestable. And I've, we are so bound by the law, so we cannot do anything willy-nilly or else we have to report to like superior. And there's, we, are, we are bound by the legal constraints. So we can't just do anything you want us to do. Like I've heard this uh, anecdote from another one of my friends. Like This uh, individual called the police because someone else insulted that person and they wanted the police to arrest that person who insulted them. Ah, yeah. And I'm like... That's a uh, slightly ridiculous. I mean, uh, in that kind of case, if you want to settle it, you have to go to the courts, like engage lawyers, and it will be a purely civil matter. 
Yeah, because so, there was no violence involved. No offences disclosed. Yeah. yeah, just verbal jousting. Yes, yes. Alright, so uh, are there any cases that you were particularly proud of that you assisted or investigated as part of your GRF duties? So, just a couple of cases come into, come into mind. There's one case where um, an employer reported that their, the, their receptionist wasn't coming to work then he suspected that she she and usually she usually comes to work every day mm-hmm. so suspected that something was wrong with her mm-hmm. then we just went to the the house see that everything is locked and all the doors and windows are closed then we thought that maybe she went off somewhere but uh one of my colleagues he she he didn't have a good feeling about it and also like when we interviewed the neighbors the neighbors also haven't seen the the, the the lady left the ho- the her house mm-hmm. because she was a she was a, a widow yeah mm. so we talked to our, su- our supervisor first our supervisor thought that maybe she she left the house and we did our due diligence of like checking around but then got we got the authority to the permission to break into the house and realized that she was actually uh, she had suffered from a stroke and she was laying mm-hmm. unconscious her bed I can still remember and I was I can still remember entering the house and like, like trying to help help out. And so this was like discovered after a few days after she. Had, no, no, had she. Uh, so it was just a few just a few hours. Uh, so, thankfully she was oh, alive you. and well. Okay. And like I was very grateful for my colleague for, uh, both of us we had like a uneasy feeling that day. Mm. But uh, when because it it took over like a f- couple of hours to like come into, we have to interview the neighbours and interview the employer mm-hmm. in, and discuss with our supervisor what is the right course of action. Then uh, my, uh, we, we managed to argue our way to uh, get, get uh, break into the house. Mm-hmm. Okay. Any other cases? There's also um, a couple of cases where we um, um, encounter people um, just leaving the vicinity, having committed shock death, then sometimes I think it's human nature that you will kind of give like signs that you are, uh, you, you, uh, you, you may exhibit signs that that you are, you have committed a crime or like body language. Yeah, body yeah, language. Okay. Then I remember just me and my colleague just walking in in the shopping area. They're like mm. this. Uh, the vicinity then we we saw a couple of people just uh making like a very like a very obvious u-turn away from us like mm-hmm. we we saw them seeing us and then trying to evade us mm-hmm. and then we stopped them interviewed them then realized that they have committed a, a shop theft offense then we went over to the shop and checked that yeah that these items were from the shop so because like uh i still remember like uh, the person's had like a a bottle of milk, mm-hmm. and it was cold like from the fridge. Then um, uh, we were at the we we were at the central area. Then like I said like where where do you get this milk from? Then he said like all the way from Pasir Ris. Then we were at Bedok at that point. So like how do you get the yeah. cold milk? Why, why would you bring you must, milk all the way from Pasir Ris? And, and how is it still cold? <laughs> <laughs> you must tell me your secrets. I need to know. <laughs> okay, okay. But yeah, so so most case, other cases are like that. Like 
the cases slowly evolve, like you find some evidence, you pick up certain signs that maybe people are not telling you the entire story. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's helpful to interview different people uh, that are involved in the case and sometimes you have to make the decision or discuss with investigating officers. Mm -hmm. But uh, those are quite interesting and uh, quite um, quite uh, eye-opener. Mm, I think this is where your training differs from mine because for me, if I recall correctly, we were trained to recognize body language a lot. We were, we were really a lot of lessons dedicated to recognizing body language and, and movements that, that would hint towards a certain offense being committed, uh, committed or a certain crime about to be committed because we were, we were not... We, we do not carry as many... In my vocation in, in SOC, we, we do not respond to all incidents. We only respond as a last resort. Your vocation is like essentially the riot police, right? Yes, the riot police. So we, we only respond as a last resort. We are not deployed like how you are deployed for almost every case that, that is being called into 999. So when we, when we are the last resort, we need to make sure that we can assess the situation even better than how the first responders assess situations. Because we have... When usually when they call us, we are already short of time. So we need to know what we can as fast as we can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I think that's where we differ in now. I think it's also important historical context that we 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 uh, we were actively deployed to, uh, like in the wake of the Little India riot. Mm. So maybe your training had to be heightened. And I I can tell that the general police um, organization mm. was a little uptight. Like there were, cause a a major event that just happened in in the country, and then right, right, right. then like um, there are a lot of checks to ensure. I think checks beyond the regular checks to ensure that everything is in order and that mm. we were doing our due diligence in discharging our duty. So maybe that's why you're yeah. Because like I remember, for example, one of the first things that I it still sticks to me today. Like whenever I enter a room or enter an uh, enclosed environment, like the first thing I look for is where's the exit. Behind, uh, behind you. Uh, like, you like, like, where, the, where are all the points of exit? You know? like, there's like just, it just comes naturally nowadays. Like if I if I enter a shopping mall, like okay, this is the exit here, this is the exit there, this is the exit there. Okay, there's a potential way to get out here. This kind of thing, you know, like where 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 are the blockades or where uh, this kind of thing? Like the, yeah, yeah, the I think scenario I, assessment. I think yeah, basically it's like kind of ingrained to your mind. Like, there's this uh, yeah. saying in police called assess the situation. Mm. AOS. Uh, yes. Oh, is it <laughs> AOG or something? Uh, assessment uh, of jeopardy or something like that. Uh, assess the situation. Uh, yeah. So like, uh, every case is different. Mm. Then like, sometimes um, being familiar with the environment or knowing where are the uh, different things that can be done. Like mm. uh, maybe for in your case especially, mm. it's pretty helpful. It's helpful, yeah. So, uh, can you share us? Can you share with us any lessons that you learned during your time as a GRF officer? I think one of the one of the bigger lessons that mm. stuck to me is like it showed me like the the underbelly of Singapore. Like mm. I think most of us, especially back then as a JC kid, uh, mm. probably uh, we had a different image of Singapore being like a a city that is very uh, that is. Is very advanced, very modern. That everybody has stripped the benefits of like globalization and mm. all those, and all the, and all the global thingies. But then you realize that there are some people that are left out in the community. Mm. That are, then maybe that's why they are involved in petty crime. Maybe that's why they are, they are entrenched in a cycle that is very hard for them to escape. And back then I was mainly going through like. Uh, 
the education system that is pretty, in my opinion, very sheltered. Uh, I mm. see, I interacted with people who are like-minded, exactly. people who think the same way as me. But being in uh, national service, both when I was in the training and uh, being actively deployed, I see a different side of Singapore that I was quite uh, shocked uh, or surprised to see uh, that there are people uh, suffering or people um, in such conditions still, uh, being being in Singapore. Uh, so that that changed my mindset of how 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 we view ourselves as a nation. Uh, because like there's also there's uh, let me I just lost my train of thought <laughs> it's okay take your time so like when sometimes people say oh Singapore is very safe or Singapore mm. is not safe or uh, usually people will say Singapore is safe then yes. I, I can't help but roll my eyes a little because like maybe because it's the environment you, you mainly stay in an environment that is that is secure or very supportive but there is another side of it that you may not know that there are officers as well as other different um frontline vocations that have uh, that are on the guard to ensure that everybody is well and ev- the peace is kept la. and also maybe another thing that i i learned i think i learned to be very diplomatic in mm. what i say so like um you cause like what you say especially to members of public or to people attending a case especially when the emotions are usually very high mm. very uh uh, you you enter uh you enter a case a triple nine call usually there are people already shouting there are people hurt there there might be sometimes can get a little gory or a little uh out of hand then you can't expect people to rationally say oh thank you officers please please have a seat we are t- currently discussing how to handle our situation or no, people just shout at you mm-hmm. when they see the, uh so when you enter a, a situation in the blue uniform you have to be able to like command their command their respect as well as to say things that will help to de-escalate the situation mm. uh, and sure that cooler heads prevail so that's so with that I learned up that that words can really matter how you say it to people and and use and just being more just so in in the end I learned to be just more diplomatic and like oh there's things that you can say to make someone feel better to make someone feel worse as well <laughs> so it's just uh, working on that yeah, I think that's a very good skill to have in general mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I mean uh, working with people is a lifelong skill it's a lifelong work in progress eh? exactly exactly so uh, one of the things that I've always wondered about GRF officers because I've never had this experience is that how do you keep the emotion out of your cases you have to take like each case one step at a time you cannot uh, I think you cannot uh, like really uh, how say it, like just dwell into a case for too long until like it 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 until it uh, kind of affect your mental train of thoughts and also maybe the nature of the job after you handle a case if you're lucky you get a few times to rest a few moments to rest if you're unlucky another triple nine case will call or your your colleagues attending another case might require assistance that you have to rush into. So it's I like to say uh, the whole duty, whether it's night or morning duty, is like a different peaks of ad- adrenaline. So suddenly I'm just chilling. 
like uh, oh I'm thinking like oh I can have uh, roti prata later during supper breakfast then suddenly like, oh we have to rush here somebody needs our assistance so like oh, then you suddenly I still remember there's one time when although this is slightly sidetracking from the question like, mm-hmm. like I remember just uh, waking up from a nap then suddenly we are informed that oh there's a case a housebreaking case because there was a serial housebreaker mm-hmm. then like he's he struck at our vicinity then I remember being drowsy and then my office my colleague, my superior officer on the car, we just uh, sped, sped all the way to the scene. And then everything in the car just <laughs> flew around. My log, my, my log books and my bag was flying all over the place. And I was trying to freshen up my face <laughs> so that I'll be ready to attend to the, the case. Because there, there'll be um, the people who call the triple nine. Mm. So that was pretty, that was just a, a, a fun, a fun ride of like, being a, uh, in a in in a quick change of 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 how say of uh, moods and vibes like suddenly you're chilling mm. and suddenly okay you 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 have to be on your feet. Yep. So I think with that like the case after case you kind of like it also takes your mind away from the previous case and so for certain cases if it's serious or anything there's always like after action review that mm. we will sit together and discuss oh we could have done this better. Yes. Like we did this well, so on. Uh, yeah, so, but I think, and also another thing is that uh, you trust in, you have a little faith of how the system works. Uh, like um, sometimes uh, you feel that something is a different way from the legal process, but you hope that the legal system will iron things out. Because uh, the police, as the blue, you are just there for a short period of time. Mm. You're not. Cause like there's also like post investigation, then uh intervention intervention cost, uh, measures to, to help out. But usually we are there for like the first few moments. Like we also have like members of public who has been in cases before approaching us, like, saying how's the case? Like you attended or your colleagues attended a while back, mm-hmm. and like we can, uh we can't say much because like usually it's handed over to the investigative mm-hmm. branch and so on. Okay. So, uh, next question is, uh, do you have any regrets in any cases that you've attended? Any regrets? Other than a few, a couple of cases of people running away and I wasn't able to catch them. <laughs> uh, um, not that much regrets. Uh, uh, the, the only, I think there's a, just a couple of sad things, like, like what I say, seeing, people, seeing different families in different, uh, uh, when there's cases of like family dispute, then you can see that this won't turn out well for either party. Then you see that there are, there are kids involved in like very young, like sometimes walking up to you uh, very short. I mean, I'm very short, so they're really shorter. And then you you can you can imagine your head like, oh, this, this may not turn out well for them. And I think it takes someone with a lot of resilience to go through these kind of things. So I always think about like how... I w- uh, worry a bit about like, oh no, uh, we are there for just a short period of time. And then like this kind of, vis- uh, this kind of cycle of like uh, disputes and like um, this um, kind of social cycle th- that you see, then, then as an officer, you see like people in different stages of that cycle. Like you see family disputing, you see uh, kids uh, either playing truant or, or like, like doing like, um, not, not, 
kids like hanging out and doing like silly things although them kids being kids then you see at each different stages of the cycle is slightly heart-wrenching <laughs> to say the least but um so that's why if you can you should advocate for for uh, you should always volunteer and help out people who are more vulnerable always look out for more vulnerable people around around that's you. some good advice <laughs> right, so speaking of the kids who came up to you when the members of public who asked you how is your investigation going on so i want to ask you about your interactions with members of public in general so in your experience how do the members of the public respond to police officers when you're doing your routine ground patrols or when you're doing investigations or after you've completed a successful investigations can you share some of your experiences with these interactions? Some people, uh, some people can be a little annoyed, like uh, when we do like routine checks. They, but then uh, usually, uh, they they end up being okay because like we, we usually inform that we have to be professional and inform that yeah we're just doing our job, and then if you have nothing to hide, we can make this fast and uh, we want we also don't want any trouble. As long as you say that you have nothing on you, that you're fine, then you're good to go. Some some people you can tell that they are appreciative of like the of our presence around. Then that's quite heartening to see sometimes mm. people uh, acknowledging uh, acknowledging our presence and acknowledging our our small contribution. Sometimes there's also the odd parent that says, "Oh, careful! The police are here." Uh-huh. They're <laughs> scared their children to be yeah, hitting, just, right? Just, yeah. But that's a slightly uh, not a good mentality to have because you want kids to respect the police, not not police. Not, re- not be uh, respect of course, but not be afraid. Yeah, yeah don't so fear if, the police. if yeah. they get if they got lost and they see an officer, okay, let's go to this guy, mm. please help. Me. Go go to this officer, please help me. Mm. I'm lost. That kind of thing. Yeah. All right. On the final note for this podcast, are there any mentors or supervisors that nurtured you or motivated you or pushed you into becoming a better p- police officer? I was when I was a uh, GRF officer. I was I was strong. I was in a part of a team of uh, regular officer, full time officers. Mm. Then um, they all were very supportive because most of them are either on different stage of their careers as a police officers. And it's probably the first time that I actually hanged out with adults because usually most of my friends then were just JC kids and stuff. So there you. Then I see how they interact with one another, how they, how they also have other major concerns like their career progression, their family, and so on, uh, which also led me to think about that of my own, and also brings things to perspective. Also, like they are very helpful in like um, ensuring that I get the things done well, and also advising me on like different things to do, and they're always looking out for for me la. Like I think there was one incident incident when I was uh, I happened to be alone uh, like, like I think because we were slightly uh, separated during a, um, a operation then I encountered somebody suspicious then I approached them then I through the radio system I informed that okay I would like to I am interviewing this person then <laughs> on that on that moment I can all the officers in my team basically converged towards me. I get uh, two cars came towards me. My, my, my partner who was also some slightly somewhere else then immediately ran towards me. Although it turns out that the guy was was just uh, they had nothing that no offenses. He was just being a little funny. 
at a wrong place at a wrong time. But la- yeah. but yeah, he was fine and everything was fine. But uh, it was nice to at least know that you have in in the police team you have the you have these colleagues who you can trust, who you can uh, uh, learn from. So that is quite uh, heartening to know. So. All right, with that, we've come to the end of this episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Zaki, for being here. Goodbye. See you in the next episode. Bye. Take care.